Um, we're the campers. Anybody likes to camp in the room? We've got a few. Okay. Any of you still use tents? You guys. Bravo. Yeah. Um, so I grew up camping in a tent all the time. Half the time I didn't even have a tent, just a sleeping bag, you know, and I would just find a place to, you know, to sleep. And, uh, and we'd, I mean, it was, I never went anywhere without my sleeping bag. Let me put it that way. In my truck, um, there was some essentials in a sleeping bag always. I'd crash at friends' houses. I'd crash, you know, out in the woods. I'd crash uh, uh, by a pond, like wherever I could find I would I would camp. I'd start a little fire, you know, and and uh, and sleep. And uh, so this is what I'm used to. When my dad and I went hunting, we always just slept in sleeping bags in the back of his pickup. Um, he had a, a little bit of a mat that wasn't even like it maybe kept some of the ribs of the bed off your back, but it wasn't much. So it was just sleeping in a pickup truck, in the bed of a truck, and did great, fine. Um, so I, I reached a point where I took my oldest two sons hunting out to western Kansas, and we set up the tent, set up the sleeping bags, and I get like, I get like a half hour of sleep that night, and, and, uh, and the biggest hunt we had that weekend was me searching every, um, store in the area to find an air mattress. Like, and I, like, I didn't even tell my dad for years that I'd sleep on an air mattress now, because I was so embarrassed. <laughs> Some, and now I've gotten to the point, Years later, I've tried it a couple of times. The camp, this, this last year camp, we, uh, all, all us boys slept all over uh, a, 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 a church. And I was up on stage on this little tiny air mattress that's about six inches narrower than I am. So I had to like, I couldn't even, I had to like tuck my, the front of my hands into my pants to keep, to keep my arms in. Because if I let them, they would flop off the mattress and I'm sleeping like this. It was terrible. So I'm like trying to find ways just to keep my arms on top of me. Didn't sleep well at all. We've got to the point where when Esther and I go to a hotel, like for a couple nights and sleep. I can't walk for two days. Just being in a weird hotel bed, I'm like, what is happening? I can't even, like I have to sleep in my bed. I'm like the princess in the pea now. Like I, if it's not my bed and just right, like I, I'm, I'm miserable. And the worst part is, I have no idea when that happened. Like that is not me. I don't know when, like that's one of those things that sneaks up on you when you don't see it coming. And we're talking about change um, today. Uh, and so, uh, um, so just, just so you know, that's the kind of change we're talking about, the kind that sneaks up on you without you realizing it. Um, we're in the third week of our of this year's identity series. We're titling it um, H3, um, Head, Heart, Hands. Um, and we're talking about what it means to be Open Table Community Church. Uh, we started uh, by telling our story because the Bible indicates that story is important. Um, story matters, uh, and it has this strange power to overcome our enemy, um, declaring the works of God over and over and over again. I think both builds our faith, um, invites others into the God story, and I, I think it constantly reminds Satan of what God has done uh, and how many times he's been beaten. Um, this last week we talked about the importance of the information we put in our head. Uh, Jesus said we'd know the truth, know it, um, and that that knowledge of the truth would make us free. Paul added that we're actually transformed, changed. The Greek word is metamorphosis um, by the renewing of our minds. The, the way transformation happens is, is what we put on our minds. And this is something we certainly have some control over. Uh, we talked about the need for a good wisdom pyramid um, where the bulk of the information we feed our minds is the Bible and good Christian conversation, encouraging messages that spur us on to follow Jesus. And when we have that good, solid base of information going in, that, that um, good knowledge, that good information, then we can afford some junk food. It's, it's not unlike our diets where if it's, if, if the, the social media, the news, 24 hour news cycle, um, even, even sitcoms and movies, if, if those are the base of the information we put in our head, we get out of balance real quick and we get sick. It's junk food. Um, but when we give ourselves good stuff, we can afford a little bit of that. But today, um, we have to be careful because there are, um, so many messages out there. So much information bombarding our minds constantly, every second of every day, um, that's actually trying um, uh, to take over our minds. So it takes a concentrated effort uh, to keep our wisdom pyramid right side up. It's not going to happen 
um, accidentally. It's not unlike eating healthy. I don't know if you've ever tried to eat like whole healthy type foods. Um, but oftentimes the problem isn't making them taste good. My wife can make anything taste good. Like I, she can cook healthy food and it's, and it's fantastic. The problem is what you do for lunch on that day you forget to meal prep. I don't know if you've ever tried to find something quick and relatively cheap and healthy out in the world. It's just, but it's not there. It's just not there. Um, if you're looking for something fast foodish, it's going to be junk. Um, so if you want to eat healthy, you actually have to plan a lot. You have to put a lot of work and thought and planning into it. Um, but if you want junk, it's on every corner. And it's the same with the information we put in our heads. If you want good information, you actually have to work for it. You have to plan on it. You have to be deliberate about it because there is junk everywhere. Um, and uh, And so... For us to use a reliable source like the Bible, we actually have to put some work into it. Well, this morning, we're going to be talking about um, why it is so important that we actually give our minds uh, the right information, the healthy food, the truth. Um, and ironically, um, it's not about our heads. Uh, it starts there, but it must never stay there. There's nothing worse than someone with all the right head knowledge and no heart change. Um, those people are the worst. Um, because God puts a great deal of importance on the state of our hearts. Um, possibly the most famous verse on the importance of a heart is the, is the life of young David. Um, Samuel, who had recently anointed a king because he was tall and looked kingly, um, and then even more recently had to dispossess that king uh, because he had no depth, that same prophet was sent to anoint a new king. And when Samuel arrives to do just that, he goes right to the tallest and most kingly, um, like he had just done before. And God tells him that he's got it all wrong. And after kind of rejecting each of the candidates one by one, God gives Samuel this famous line. It says, the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height. Height, that's so crazy. Uh, For I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. And all the short people said amen. No. Um, People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord looks on the heart. And I know I explained um, the risk behind proof texting last week, you know, just grabbing verses from all over um, and getting them out of context. In fact, I saw the meme this week that I thought I'd share with you. I thought it was pretty good. Um, Life is short. Lick the bowl. That sign hits different when it's hanging in the kitchen than it does when it's hanging in the bathroom. In the kitchen, in its right context, that's a beautiful sentiment. Take it out of the right context, put it in the wrong context, and everything falls apart. Context is important. Um, but this morning, I, I'm, I just have to shotgun a little bit. Um, several verses, um, just to, to, and this is just a tiny bit of the, the weight of this concept in the Bible. It says, But I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. I give all people their due rewards according to what their actions deserve. That's in Jeremiah. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a loyal spirit within me. That's Psalms 51. Um, do not desire, you do not desire a sacrifice, but I would offer one. You do not want burnt offerings. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart. Also Psalms 51. Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Proverbs 4. People may be right in their own eyes, but the Lord examines the heart. Also Proverbs. I could go on and on and on. I think I just grabbed the first six on a list of like over a hundred when I googled this topic. Um, But all basically said the same thing. God looks on the heart. According to Scripture, God is far more interested in the condition of our heart than He is in our actions, our giftings, or anything else we bring to the table. He wants to know what's going on in the heart. And this really messes with our scorecards. Because we have scorecards. We keep score on, on who uses bad words, who uses the Christianese buzzwords. Um, we keep score on who's most faithful to church. We keep score on who quotes scripture the most naturally? Who votes for our political team? Who prays the most eloquently? Who wears the Christian t-shirts? And on and on and on. We have a scorecard. And we use it to judge 
who's doing well and who's not. But as the Bible is right, God doesn't pay attention to any of that. He skips right over outward appearances and looks at what's in the heart. Which means there could be two people quoting Scripture and one have a good heart and the other not, and you'd never know. Scarier still, there could be two people using spicy words. And one have a good heart and the other have a wicked heart. And we would never be able to tell the difference. Our scorecard is toast. And this whole focus on our hearts creates a problem for us. Because, because the Bible says this, the human heart is the most deceitful thing of all things. Most deceitful of all things. And desperately wicked. Who knows how bad it is? For from the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. That comes out of our wicked hearts. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The human heart is deceitful. It's a liar. And we know this to be true. Every single one of us have wanted something. Really wanted something. Like we're going to die if we don't get it. Our hearts are breaking at the very thought of not having it. And we are sure if we could just have this thing, we'll never want anything else ever again. Our hearts promise us that. We'll finally be content. And then we get it. We're like, eh, now I want that thing. We've all had it happen. And the bummer is our hearts um, are, are such a huge part of us that, that we don't pause and go, you liar. <laughs> you said you'd be happy. You said that's what you wanted. We don't pause and look at our hearts and go, why, why did you lie to me? You promised. Our hearts are deceitful. Just like Jeremiah said, when I was a junior in high school, I, I broke up with my girlfriend. We were awful together. We really couldn't stand each other. Um, but, uh, but we had dated on and off since middle school, so we were just kind of dating out of habit. Um, and uh, so I ended it. And my life got much better. I was happy. I was finally happy. Until she started dating David Niederauer. And uh, the second I saw Karen and David walking down the hall together, my heart lost its mind. Um, I was devastated. I had to get her back. I was, I was going to die if I didn't win her back. And my heart promised me that if I, if I would just make this tragedy right, I would, I would, it would never ask for anything again. And so I did all the things you're supposed to do. I stalked her. I made an awkward public scene. I cried on her mother's shoulder. I threatened her new boyfriend with bodily harm. I did it all. I did all the things. Um, I was crushing it. Um, and in the, the true, the true, like, really bad team movie style, I got her back. Um, it worked. Um, Karen broke up with David. We set up some new rules and boundaries for our relationship, and, and we got back together. And as the dust settled, we were sitting on my front porch. I remember the moment, sitting on my front porch in Lansing, Kansas, on Fairlane, and uh, at the end of the day that she finally broke up with David, she broke up with him that morning, we finally got back together, and we're sitting on the porch that evening, and she laid her, her head over on my shoulder and said she's glad that we're back together, and I remembered that I really do not like this person at all. Like, it hit me that fast. I had just worked, like, tirelessly to get her back, and I was like, oh, gosh, she's touching me. I don't even like this person. Like, it was It was ridiculous. All because I listened to my lying heart. All the reasons we broke up in the first place came flooding back into my memory. And my lying, rotten, deceitful heart was nowhere to be found. He ducked and ran. Our hearts are liars, Jeremiah said. They're deceitful. And we all know he's right. But all this heart talk presents a real dilemma. Which is not good for us at all, because if, if God is concerned about our hearts, and our hearts are not only wicked, but sneaky and deceitful and, and impossible for us to understand, then, then we are truly lost. And boy, oh boy, does that shed light on the human condition, because while we're out here focusing on externals like do's and don'ts, and while we're comparing ourselves to other people, and while we're wrestling with big philosophical and theological questions and trying to figure out where all the boundaries go, God is like, I just look past all of that to your heart. 
So when you see that person who, who lives a terrible life and then turns himself over to Jesus and they stand in contrast to that person um, who has everything together and has done everything right, but their heart is far from Jesus, how do we tell the two apart? And it doesn't make sense that that, that person could be on the team when look at what they've done, look at their mess, and this person not be on the team. And the truth is, it's all about the heart. And we can't even know our own heart, let alone someone else's. So what are we to do when when God wants us to have a, a good heart, and our heart is wicked and unknowable? And this is where the gospel comes in. It says, I will give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. But this is the new covenant, Jeremiah says, I will make with my people of Israel after those days. I will put my instructions deep within them. I'll write them on their hearts. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. The thing that makes the gospel the good news, both good and new, is that it's not about behavior. In other words, it's not a behavioral system where you obey a list of rules and earn your way to a reward. No, the good news is just that. It's news about something that's already happened. Really good news about something that's already happened. And as we choose to believe that reality... God starts to do a work in us. We might call it Jesus coming to live in our heart. Or a lot of Jewish believers call it being given a heart of flesh. Or being filled with the Holy Spirit. Or having God's Word written on your heart. Or being born again. Whatever phrase you like. It amounts to God doing the work in us. Him doing the work. And you can see it in in Jesus' simple call to Peter. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Not follow me and you can make yourself into fishers of men. or, Or follow me and you can figure out how to fish for men. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I will change you into something else. You'll come to me as a fisherman and I will do such a deep work into you that you'll be completely different. Something new. We've been drawing on this passage a lot in the last couple of months. But Romans 12, Paul says this, Don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you'll learn, how, uh, then you'll learn to know God's will for you. It's good and pleasing and perfect. What makes the gospel different is it's not based on external pressures like rules and laws. The gospel changes us from the inside. Which, of course, begs the question, what about all the behavioral stuff in Scripture? Even the New Testament. Because there are an awful lot of passages that indicate that we should be living holy lives once we join the people of God through Jesus Christ. And I think that that this is super simple to explain, but really hard to live out. And maybe even harder to let others live out. Because sin and righteousness are thermometers, not thermostats. You know the difference between a thermometer and a thermostat? The thermometer tells you what the temperature is, where the thermostat sets the temperature. In all other religions, sin is a, is a thermostat. It's something you do that then creates a situation. You, you sin and now you're lost. Your behavior sets the temperature for your spiritual life. But in the gospel, sin is a thermometer. Sin tells us the, the temperature of our hearts. It tells us what's already inside of us. Sin simply tells us how much work the Holy Spirit still needs to do in our hearts. Because our hearts are what's broken. Our hearts are what's wrong. And as the Holy Spirit works in our hearts, and as we catch ourselves doing something that's no longer according to our nature, it tells us what's going on in our hearts, that the Holy Spirit still has work to do in us. 
Let me explain what I mean from Galatians 5. Very popular verse. It says, When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, I have, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in your lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. It's so easy to, to read these two lists of behaviors. Things to do and not to do. Sexual morality, impurity, lustful pleasure, idolatry, sorcery. Don't do those things. Don't do those things. Those are bad. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Work on those things. Do those things. Those are good. I need more love. I need to be filled with more joy. I need to be more patient. I need to do these things. Except there's a couple of words that we need to look at. Paul says, when you follow the the desires of the sinful nature, the results are clear. That list of things that we shouldn't do, this isn't a thermostat. This is the thermometer. Those are symptoms. Those are things that, that happen out of us when we follow our sinful nature. Those, those are the thermostat. Do you know, do you know, uh, do you have any idea how many good Christians are trying to get rid of sexual morality with hostility and quarreling? Both are indicators that they're following their sinful nature. And even more sad is how often we, we miss the same thing on the, on the spiritual side. It says, but the Holy Spirit produces these things. Do you know how often we read this list as a list of behaviors we're supposed to really try to muster up? Like, oh God, I need to be more patient. I need to be more kind. I need to be more gentle. I need to kind of white-knuckle more self-control. But this verse says, it's the Holy Spirit that produces these behaviors. The fruits of the Spirit are not thermostats. They're not things we do to, to get closer to God. They're thermometers. They simply tell us when the Spirit's present. When, when the Spirit is working in our lives and when the Spirit is moving in us, these things just start to happen. They tell us that the Holy Spirit is present. I always call it roots and fruits. You don't, you don't make a tree more healthy by going out and giving fertilizer to the apples hanging on it. Like you don't, you don't focus on the fruit. If you want a healthy fruit, you focus on the roots. You focus on the, the, the tree. It says the Holy Spirit, when you have the Holy Spirit active in your life and the Holy Spirit is your, your roots, these are the fruits. These are the things that just happen. These are the things that grow when you have a healthy relationship with the Holy Spirit. Now, I wish I had to unpack this more um, and, and make a more thorough case for this reality, but um, this is not a theological series. This is our identity series. And I want to talk about what this has to do with OTCC, as well as maybe equip us a little bit on ways we can facilitate heart change more easily, because though it's the Holy Spirit who changes us, we can definitely put ourselves in a place where change can happen more readily. And we can do the opposite. We can do everything in our power to fight against change. In fact, last week we covered a big one. If, if we want to be transformed, we need to dig into the right information. We're transformed by the renewing of our minds. But before we dive into all that, I want to say that a key feature of Open Table Community Church from day one has been Authenticity. And all this, this biblical teaching on the significance of our heart is why we value that so much. Because there is no doubt that authenticity has become a buzzword and, and now furniture stores are value authenticity and fast food restaurants value authenticity and dog food companies value authenticity. and It can be too easy to let the word be used and lose all of its meaning. But when we say that we value authenticity here at OTCC, here's exactly what we mean. We see no value in light of the fact that God looks on the heart and the fact that the gospel 
is a presence and a power that changes us from the inside out, we find no value in pretending to be holier than we are. I would much rather allow our sins to be a thermometer about the amount of work that the Holy Spirit still has to do in us, to do in me, than to present something fake with a wrecked heart underneath the veneer just so people think that I'm holier than I am. It makes no sense. So we believe that we should be real. Real with our struggles, real with our doubts, real with our wounds and our weaknesses. We believe we should be authentic. And here's the deal. That's hard on two accounts. It's hard to be authentic. Most of us have been conditioned to be fake. We've conditioned ourselves to fake it. We've all been judged. We've been confronted. We've been lectured. We've been preached at. And we've learned from experience that it's easier to fake it. So being authentic is tough. Breaking through that training is tough. It takes a lot of faith and trust in one another to show up just like we are and be real. But if being authentic is hard, allowing others to be authentic is even harder. Everyone wants authenticity until they see it. When someone confesses a sin to us, when someone is, is open about their doubts and their, and their honesty kind of awakens and scares our own doubts a little bit. Like, when you talk about that, it makes me worry and wonder. Someone shares their fears and it sounds a lot like lack of faith to you. Recognizing that those things are a thermometer giving you the temperature of their heart and that that's an authentic look. And that they're still under construction and, 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 and is likely way farther along than they were a couple years ago. But understanding that, that all those things that frustrate us and scare us and, and concern us in others are simply proving that the Holy Spirit still has work to do in that person. And if they were to fake it and hide all of those things from us, the work would be even harder. So although all this heart talk with God's focus on the heart and, and the condition of the human heart and God's ability to, to transform a heart is all still theological and, and in some sense maybe even metaphorical, but in Open Table Community Church, what it means is that we allow people the space to come as they are. However honest and potentially uncomfortable that might be, we allow the Holy Spirit to transform them over time. And so you aren't going to hear me preach a lot of do's and don'ts or political platform points or, or tell you how to behave. And believe me, sometimes I'd love to. But I, I, I simply can't look at your heart. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. So I would much rather leave it up to Him. So here at OTCC, we, we honestly believe that the most important work, maybe the only important work, is accomplished for us by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's taking place in our hearts. And the very best way to access um, and cooperate with that work is through authenticity. Being real right where we are. Our mess and all. But, just because the real work is done by the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that, that we can't and don't cooperate with that. And even facilitate um, a lot of it, as we discussed last week with the, with the wisdom pyramid. Which is just a tool to help us to, to, to be mindful of the information we, we put in our minds. Because that facilitates who we're going to turn into. But this morning I'd like to offer some other tools. We did a wisdom pyramid last week. New tools this week. That I believe can help us open up our hearts to the Holy Spirit and invite Him to transform us. These are called the classic spiritual disciplines. I'm not going to unpack all these much. Um, if you want to do a deeper dive, uh, I recommend um, uh, Richard Foster's book, Celebration of Discipline. It's fantastic. I read it at least once a year. Um, if you want to log into my Audible and listen to it, you can. Um, that's that? It's out here too? Okay. There's a paper copy out there you can check out. 
But there are basically three categories of disciplines. The inward disciplines, meditation, prayer, fasting, and study. The outward disciplines of simplicity, solitude, submission, and service. And the corporate disciplines of confession, worship, guidance, and celebration. And, and the beauty of the disciplines is that this is exercise in the spiritual life. This is how you practice. Sin and temptation, those are the real game. Those are what you bump into um, that you want to make sure you've exercised for. If you're tempted to sin and you give in, there's real consequences. That's how life works. And I also believe um, that that's why God like, forbids them so a- avidly. He's, he's trying to protect us from the consequences of, of those sins. So, and, and maybe boot camp's a better metaphor for the spiritual disciplines. Because we would never draft a soldier, hand him a gun, and take him overseas, throw him into war. With no training, no conditioning. And yet many of us do just that in the spiritual life. We go straight into war, the war of life, and we have a real enemy who seeks our real destruction, hoping that once we're attacked, we'll, we'll hold on and, and fight well and resist temptation. It's not a good plan. So the disciplines are a way for us to train. I'm going to run through this super fast. Um, and, and here's my advice. When one of these sounds ridiculous to you, that's probably the one you should do. But one of these sounds awful, and you're like, who does that? That means that's yours. Every time I read this book once a year, and every time, about half of them, I'm like, yeah, I'm crushing it. And the other half, I'm like, God, I suck. I need to I need work. And it's different every time. It's a different, that's the fun part. It changes every time. So, meditation. Meditation is filling our minds with God. It's that simple. This can be meditating on a particular passage of Scripture. It can be trying to stay conscious of God's presence um, throughout the day. Read Practicing the Presence of, of God by Brother Lawrence. Great little book. Um, just, just trying to, to, to recognize His presence in any moment. And, and, and recognizing how easy it is to let go of that. A.W. Tozer said, God is always with us. The only thing that ever changes is our awareness. And that changes fast. One of my favorites is, is uh, Lectio Divina. It's a great form of, dis- of, of uh, uh, it's a great spiritual discipline where you read a passage over and over and over and try to get a sensory feel of the passage. What can you hear in the background of this scene? What did it smell like? Are you standing on grass? Or are you standing on dirt? Like, what do your clothes feel like on your skin? And you read it over and over and over again until it feels like you're standing in the scene. It's a great way to become aware of what's going on in the scripture. If you struggle with anxiety, try this discipline. Fill your mind so full of, of God and Scripture that there's no room for the, for the fear. Because we all know when you get, when you get anxious, the, the worst thing you could possibly do is tell yourself not to be anxious. Stop being anxious. It's like if I told you to close your eyes and whatever you do, don't think of a pink elephant. First thing to pop in your head is the pink elephant, right? Of course. The only way, and that's why Paul doesn't say, don't, don't think any of these bad things. He says, whatever's good and lovely and, and holy and righteous, think on these things. You, it's like when you get soap in a milk jug, like, and you can try all day to put some water in there, shake it out and dump it. Man, I, that's just like that widow's oil, man. It just keeps making more and more suds. The only way to get it out is just to let it overflow. You fill it with water and you just let it overflow until all the suds are finally out and gone. That's what meditation does for anxiety. You just keep your heart and your mind so full of God and His presence and His Word that, that there's not room for anything else. Anyway, got to move on. Most of that wasn't in my notes. We're in trouble. Prayer. Um, we're pretty familiar with this discipline. If, if you struggle with prayer, I will say this. Um, uh, if a lot of people struggle with, with regular prayer, try using pre-written prayers. Um, I did this for a year, many years ago. felt really weird at first to be just reading my prayers. But here's what it does for you. Um, it makes it super easy to establish a prayer time every day um, without the pressure of coming up with things to say. You already know you're going to open this thing. You're going to read your prayers. Um, and and, and it, it helps you lock in, man, this is my prayer time. This is my, you know, this is the 15 minutes, 30 minutes, hour, whatever you want to do that I pray. And you can lock it in and not, you know, uh, have to worry about what you're going to say. Uh, number two, 
God, there are some there are some beautiful prayers that people have written, and they put a lot of thought and effort into them. And you'll find yourself um, uh, like agreeing with them, like yes, that's exactly what my heart feels, like that's exactly what I need. And and so you'll quickly find yourself really agreeing with those prayers. And number three, you're training yourself to pray. Using someone else's words to, to learn how to, to pray. So if you struggle with prayer, try it. Try it. You can get a prayer book. You can just Google. There's tons of great prayers online. You can find all kinds of things. Try using pre-written prayers. See, see what you think. Um, just to build the discipline. Like I say, this is practice. This is something we do just to, to, to train. Fasting. We talk about this every year in Lent. This is flexing your no muscles, your resistance muscles. Um, sometimes there's going to be something you have to say no to. If you've never flexed those muscles, you've never practiced saying no, it can be hard. So that's how we practice saying no. Study. This is real digging. Pick a topic. Pick a book. Dig in. Get some commentary. Um, read some supporting lectures. Um, take your time. Just and, and don't bounce. Try not to bounce. Just say, this is what I'm doing. Um, I've done four year-long studies. We're like, this is all I'm going to allow myself to really dig into for the next year. I want to know this thing and really write it out and see what I get. Because most of us will bounce whatever hot topic. Especially now, man, with TikTok and all the short things, we bounce so bad. Study is digging in. Stay in there for a minute. Um, using patience. Simplicity. This is a big one. Um, this is a hard one today um, because things are, we've got so much junk. Um, take inventory and ask what you need. Do I need all this? Um, is all this serving God and serving a purpose? Do I have to have all these things? Is it all helping me um, serve God and his kingdom? How much do I actually need? Minimize some things. Find someone to bless with them. That's a great. I, I had a. We had a friend several years ago, and you you had to be careful. He had he had taken simplicity so far that if you were walking in his house, it was like, dude, I love that picture. He would just say, take it, it's yours. If you like it, I want you to have it. He just give you his stuff. So you didn't compliment anything. You're like, Steve, man, come on. I don't want your stuff. It's just a nice picture. He's like, I want you to be blessed with it. Put it somewhere cool. And he just give you anything. Um, and and uh, when you it's it's uh, when you read Celebration of Discipline, he says, as you go through your house and do this, the second you feel your heart go, oh, I couldn't give that away. He's like, give it away immediately. It's got too much of a hold on you. Just like, just just dump it. Like if you if you feel yourself clinging, he's like, oh, you don't want to hold that. Find someone to bless with it. Like, here, you ruin your life with it. No, I'm just, he actually does say sometimes you just want to throw it away because if it's you don't want to donate it, it's going to hurt somebody else. Um, but simplify. Like how 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 simple could my life be? Um, next, solitude and silence. This is learning to listen. Um, I, this is the tough one. Never have I read this book and been like, yeah, I'm doing good at that. Like, I'm afraid of silence. The second I get in my car, noise goes on, headphones go in, something. I don't, like, I freak out in, in quiet. Um, so I've been trying to train myself to be better uh, at this one. Um, this is just learning to be alone. Only when you're alone do you learn that you're never truly alone. When you get alone and you find God's presence there, you realize I'm, I'm actually never alone. Um, God is always there. But you've got to do solitude. Um, all the moms are going, yes, please, give me some of that. Um, submission, another tough one today, especially in America. Um, and this isn't subjection. Um, it's, it's about putting someone else's needs, desires, and wishes above your own. This can be small things like letting someone else pick the restaurant, even though you know where you want to go, and having a good attitude about it. Like, I want to go where you want to go. I want to please you. I want you to be happy, um, and choosing to have a good attitude about it. Yeah, it got battery and everything. Maybe I bumped it. Huh? Yeah. That's weird. Um, maybe if your spouse is always dragging you to church um, and you generally fight a little bit and grump about it. There we go. Um, 
This discipline could just be recognizing that, that church is important to your spouse. And you choose to submit to that with a good attitude. And, and you discipline yourself to go along and be upbeat and say, I don't know that I get a ton out of it, but it's important to you and I want to submit to your needs. This is mostly about intentionality. It's saying I'll surrender my will with a good attitude as an exercise to prepare you for the times when God calls you to do something you don't want to do. And you know you have to submit to that. So this is practice. Service is just that, using your time and energy to bless someone else. This can be babysitting, cleaning a house, meal train, or, or whatever. But, but as a discipline, I recommend not just serving spontaneously when the need pops up. But set aside a little time, like a quota for yourself. Once in a quarter, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find somebody to serve them or find a way to serve them. Just, just pop in and do something nice for somebody. Confession. This is really out of vogue in, in Protestant churches, which is super sad because it's really powerful. This, this takes us back to that authenticity, being open and real with somebody. And hearing a real human voice say, not by me, nothing by but by the authority of Scripture, because you've done what Scripture told you to do, you are forgiven. Hearing a human voice say that to you is powerful. It's good for us. Worship, this is more than just showing up to church. This is about engaging. Pray for the service before you come. Take some ownership. Befriend a, a child and decide that you're going to teach them how to worship. I'm going to take them beside me during worship and I'm going, to, I'm going to show them how to worship. I'm going to demonstrate first, but I'm also going to, going to help them learn like when we are loud and clap our hands and when we're quiet. And it's, it's engaging in the worship process and making it yours. Try biblical things that you've never tried before. Raise your hands, clap, kneel, lay prostate. Those are all in the Bible. And sometimes worship requires some experimentation. This is weird to me, but it's in the Bible. I'm going to give it a shot. Guidance is a beautiful piece of discipleship. This is asking for advice from another believer. According to Luke, we have the Lord's Prayer because the disciples said, Hey, can you teach us how to pray? Like, teach us. Show me how to do this. I'm terrible at this. I'm not even good at this. That's guidance. It's, it's when you feel like your spiritual life is stuck and deciding to go to someone else and, and, and ask for help getting unstuck. Deciding that you'll try what, whatever they recommend. I'm, I'm going to come to you. I'm going to say, hey, what do I do here? I'm, I'm stuck. Celebration. This is taking fun seriously. This is choosing as a, as a real conscious choice to do something meaningless because you know that it's not actually meaningless. So often we try to be purposeful with everything. We're going to sneak in a quick Bible study or we're going to uh, do something else. And, and celebration is reminding you that, uh, that the whole thing doesn't hang on your shoulders. You can take a night off and you, can, and you can play. God was very serious about this in the Old Testament. They had three festivals and there's one passage that's my favorite. It's like anybody who tries to do any work on this party will be put to death. Like It's like, it's like you will party and you're going to like it. Um, but he took, he took these, the, the, the three big festivals very seriously. And Sabbath they took very seriously, which was just about rest and celebration and, and having some fun and playing. Really important. If, if you have a hard time with that, you really need to lean into that, dis, that discipline. If you have a hard time just letting go of work and letting go of, of purpose and, and letting go of, of, uh, of accomplishment, um, Man, you need, you need to, as a discipline, make yourself celebrate. Make yourself just have fun um, and, uh, and let go. And the beauty of all these is, is that they're super powerful, but they don't really matter. That's what makes spiritual disciplines so important. No one is going to, like, give you extra brownie points because you've gotten better at solitude and silence. Like, it's not something you brag about. You'll grow much deeper and more focused, but no one's going to give you a, a bunch of pats on the back for it. If you settle in and, and try a discipline and you fail, you haven't sinned. That's what practice is about. It, it allows you to build yourself spiritually without waiting until you're on the front line and waiting until you're in a bad situation 
to do it. This is the practice field. Low risk, high reward. I highly recommend grab some disciplines and, and, and try them. You're opening yourself up for the Holy Spirit to do some work. And you'll find some, you'll find some things this way. When you try to fast and, and you find yourself getting mean and nasty, like you're like, ooh, I didn't know that was in there. I had one the other day, and it was like I was trying to walk the dog back to the fence, and the dog was fighting me on it. And this, I could have killed the dog with my bare hands. This unbelievable rage that this dog that wouldn't do what I was asking it to do came out of me. And I, like, put him in the fence and shut the gate, and I was like, what's wrong with me? Of course the dog didn't want to go in the fence. I don't know what that was. Like, oh, my gosh. And I didn't do anything mean to the dog, but the the boiling rage was unbelievable. And that's, like, and immediately I, I, I actually confessed to Esther, and I was like, I don't like that that's still in there. I, didn't, I haven't felt that in a long time. Like, I used to feel that all the time. Like, I used to feel that toward my kids. Like, oh, my and I was like, I haven't felt that like where I could feel all the the pressure to do harm like come up out of me. Was, but it reminded me that I still have the Holy Spirit still needs to work on me and do some things in me. And when you try to do the disciplines, things will pop up and it'll bring things to the surface. And 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 there's no shame in failing. It's like, oh, okay, Holy Spirit, we've got some work to do. Like I've I now see what's in there. If you try solitude and freak out, you just go home and ask the Holy Spirit to to help you get better at this. No harm done. No, no, like nothing's wrong. You have new insight now. I'm not good at being alone. You have something you can pray for. But every one of these disciplines is in the Bible. There, you, there's people doing these things all over the Bible. Um, they show up in, in Christian writing as early as the mid-200s A.D. Um, this has been a part of the church forever. And the fact that they've fallen out of, out of uh, style almost is, is, a, is a sad thing. It's a loss. Um, and so these are not do's and don'ts. These are not something you're a bad Christian if you don't do them. These are tools that we can use, that the church has used for 2,000 years to grow deeper and to open ourselves up um, to the Holy Spirit. And, and it's a good, healthy exercise in the spiritual life. So how do we respond to this? The way I'd love to respond to this me- message is pretty simple. Learn to read a thermometer. I have two that I would love for you to consider. The first is Galatians 5. We already read them. The Holy Spirit. When you have the Holy Spirit working active in your life, and it'll produce these things. Here's how you'll know. This will be the evidence that that's happening. This is how you'll know that the Holy Spirit is working in you. You'll, you'll have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Stop trying to be more loving, be more joyful, be more kind and gentle. Instead, if you aren't being gentle or you are lacking self-control, seek the Holy Spirit. Help me. Why is this in me? What's going on in me? Do a work in me. Dive into a spiritual discipline and ask the Holy Spirit to to work on you. So first, learn to recognize when you're not walking in the Spirit because the fruits won't be there. And make adjustments quick. And the second thermometer is from the book of Acts. The very first Christians, it says, uh, all these believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. And a deep sense of awe came over all of them. And the apostles performed many miracles and signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple and met each day. Met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. And all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. This is the spontaneous behavior of the earliest church. No rules, no outline to follow, no do's and don'ts. This is just what they naturally fell into. Just by being part of that special Pentecost where the Holy Spirit first fell. This is how they acted. This is how the Holy Spirit motivated the very first group of Jesus people to act. And I believe through their, though their lives were lived in a very different context to ours, we can use their reaction to the gospel as a thermometer to see if the gospel is truly moving on us. Just a quick list going through this pack is they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, which means 
They were in the Word. They hung out together and ate meals. If you feel no compulsion to be with other believers and share food, maybe ask the Holy Spirit, why not? They prayed for each other, and prayer is hard. But I honestly believe it's super powerful, and our enemy knows it's good, and so he fights us on it. They experience awe. This is a big thing. If you don't have just wonder at God, ask the Holy Spirit, why not? They shared as the Holy Spirit works on your heart. If you don't grow in generosity, if you don't feel your heart becoming more generous, then something's wrong. Your heart should be to share when the gospel gets a hold of it, especially with your church family. And many of us have been wounded by the church's abuse of money. We know that. But in your heart, you should grow in generosity as you grow closer to to Christ. The early church shared everything. They they got radical, sold things to share. They worshiped. It says they worshiped together. If worship's totally boring for you and, and you just don't get it, ask the Holy Spirit why. They experienced joy and goodwill. Life had some excitement and some passion. It was catching. It was spreading. As you, as you read this passage, these, these last few verses of chapter 2 of Acts, if you don't see that in your life, let it be a thermometer. If you don't see that in your life, what's going on? Dig in. Say, Holy Spirit, what's happening? Why am I not seeing this, these, this, this growth? We spend so much time like white, trying to white-knuckle the Christian life that we don't ask, why is my heart not growing and changing? This week, read over the passage at the end of the book of Acts. Let it be a thermometer. Would you have fit in? That's a good question. If I were to invite a time machine and I went back to 2,000 years to that first church, would I fit in? Would I be able to jump into that flow and feel right at home? Above all else, this is, this is not something we fake. Don't fake any of this stuff. Like that, that ruins it. When you're like, okay, this is how I have to act if I want to fit in. No, no, no. That ruins it. This is something you do with God. Like, I want these attributes in my life, God. Help me to, to, to grow in you so that these grow in me. This is a thermometer, not a thermostat. This is not something you do to set a temperature. This is what you do to take the temperature. And then you ask the Holy Spirit to move in you. Be honest and let the Holy Spirit change you.